If you've read D.A. Ward's January report, you've probably noticed that he called it a conviction integrity review. We assume he used that term because that's exactly what we asked the California Attorney General to do in September 2018. We argued to the AG that given the documented misconduct by TCSO and the Tulare DA's office during the Clifton investigation, trial, appeals, and parole hearings, and the fact that the new suspect was a sworn Exeter police sergeant at the time of the murder, the case required an outside review to determine if Oscar Clifton was actually innocent. We've attached a document to this episode that gives a good, detailed description of the Conviction Integrity Review goals and process, but we'll try to summarize it for those who aren't interested in doing a deep dive. The first place to start is understanding a criminal appeal, especially back in the 1970s and early 80s before DNA. When a criminal attorney files a motion or raises an objection, the trial judge has to make a ruling. If the defense loses, that issue is still preserved for appeal, and the defendant can later argue that the judge made a mistake in the law and that the mistake was so harmful to the defense that the only cure is to overturn the conviction and order a new trial. This was, and still is, a nearly impossible standard to meet because, under the law, judges have wide discretion to make such rulings, so the mistake has to be overwhelmingly clear to the appeals court. Each issue can only be appealed once. If you lose, you can't raise it again. The Clifton appeals were hampered by now obsolete prior court rulings. The limited questioning TCSO did after Oscar asked for an attorney is completely banned under Miranda now, but was still allowed at the time of Oscar's appeal of that issue. The hearsay statements at trial about what Oscar supposedly said during that questioning would be a bad joke today. The entirety of a police interview must be videotaped or none of it can be admitted in court. The Brady violations were almost too numerous to count, but the main ones were the suppression of the alibi witnesses Trueblood and Gerber and exculpatory lab findings that excluded Oscar and his truck, including hidden ABO testing. Oscar lost his last appeal on those issues two years before a new Supreme Court ruling changed the standard in favor of full disclosure to defendants. Because Oscar could not appeal based on actual innocence, he and the Innocence Project spent the last 20 years of Oscar's life trying to find some piece of evidence that contained the real killer's DNA. As we've covered extensively in prior episodes, TCSO Bird made sure that all of those items were destroyed in 1977, and the hair reference slide tested in 2011 never had any evidence left by Donna's killer. It was used for microscopic hair comparisons. It was not evidence, and it was not semen. There was never any route through appeals for Oscar to argue that he didn't commit the crime, and because Donahue filed so few motions and objections, Oscar quickly ran out of procedural issues to address. In many ways, it was the introduction of DNA testing in criminal cases that created conviction integrity reviews. DNA provided positive proof of innocence, and it became clear that wrongful convictions were not rare and that bad convictions followed some patterns. Six of the most common factors identified in wrongful convictions were present in this case. Tainted and unreliable eyewitness identifications, junk science, interrogation, Miranda, and hearsay violations, police and prosecutorial misconduct, ineffective assistance of counsel, and vague opinion testimony presented as expert. We've seen two-hour TV specials devoted to cases with just one small piece of one of these issues. 
The Richmond investigation and Clifton's conviction are like a masterclass on everything that police, criminalists, prosecutors, and defense attorneys should never, ever do. By the time we approached the AG's office, we had added an unprecedented seventh factor, the identification of a new suspect who had motive, means, and opportunity, along with a badge, uniform, police car, and 13 homicide charges. There literally could not be a criminal conviction with more doubts than Clifton's, and the lack of evidence available for testing, due solely to Byrd's unexplained and illegal destruction, made a conviction integrity review absolutely necessary. In addition to our written request to the Attorney General, DA Ward had a specific duty to conduct a conviction integrity review. California Rules of Professional Conduct, Rule 3.8, Special Responsibilities of a Prosecutor, Section F. When a prosecutor knows of new, credible, and material evidence creating a reasonable likelihood that a convicted defendant did not commit an offense of which the defendant was convicted, the prosecutor shall, one, promptly disclose that evidence to an appropriate court or authority, and two, if the conviction was obtained in the prosecutor's jurisdiction, promptly disclose that evidence to the defendant and undertake further investigation or make reasonable efforts to cause an investigation to determine whether the defendant was convicted of an offense that the defendant did not commit. Paragraph G. When a prosecutor knows of clear and convincing evidence establishing that a defendant in the prosecutor's jurisdiction was convicted of an offense that the defendant did not commit, the prosecutor shall seek to remedy the conviction. A prosecutor has the responsibility of a minister of justice and not simply that of an advocate. This responsibility carries with it specific obligations to see that the defendant is accorded procedural justice, that guilt is decided upon the basis of sufficient evidence, and that special precautions are taken to prevent and to rectify the conviction of innocent persons. This rule is intended to achieve those results. If the conviction was obtained in the prosecutor's jurisdiction, Paragraph F requires the prosecutor to examine the evidence and undertake further investigation to determine whether the defendant is in fact innocent or make reasonable efforts to cause another appropriate authority to undertake the necessary investigation and to promptly disclose the evidence to the court and to the defendant. Under Paragraph G, once the prosecutor knows of clear and convincing evidence that the defendant was convicted of an offense that the defendant did not commit, the prosecutor must seek to remedy the conviction. Depending upon the circumstances, steps to remedy the conviction could include disclosure of the evidence to the defendant and, where appropriate, notifying the court that the prosecutor has knowledge that the defendant did not commit the offense of which the defendant was convicted. Let us be perfectly clear, D.A. Ward never conducted a conviction integrity review or met his duty under RPC 3.8, not even close. Not only did Ward's report fail to tell the truth about the material facts of the case and the evidence, his report also contains lies about the documents he reviewed. 
and the process he followed. How do we know? Because Ward and ADA Alavezos have publicly discussed it. From Ward's report, quote, The conviction review process included the thorough examination and evaluation of police reports, photographic evidence, forensic laboratory reports, including DNA analysis, trial and appellate transcripts, and a complete review of information submitted to the Office of the District Attorney by supporters of Clifton. That contains one absolute lie and two grossly misleading statements. One, they did not review the trial transcript. That is a lie. This has been confirmed to us by multiple sources, and they stated it clearly in Episode 117 of the Paper Trail podcast interview with the publisher and editor of the Exeter Sun Gazette. And they even went so far, and Dave, correct me, um, uh, they went so far as to go up to the state archives in Sacramento to try to find actual trial transcripts. As you know, as everyone knows in this case, a lot of the transcripts are simply not available anymore. They just, they're just they just not there. I tried um, to get them. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we, we went as far as the state archives in Sacramento. Wow. As everyone knows, in this case, a lot of the transcripts are simply not available anymore. That is a flat-out lie and D.A. Ward knows it. He's a licensed attorney and an elected prosecutor, and he's lying about a material fact in a homicide case review, a case where a man was sent to death row, beaten by other inmates, denied parole because he maintained his innocence, and died in prison. We not only have an original copy of all 12 volumes of the trial transcript, but also the grand jury and the 1981 and 1983 appeals hearings. The fact that Ward feels totally free to lie to the press about material facts in an ongoing investigation is mind-numbing. Truly, this is not normal. I tried to get them. Yeah. Really, Mr. Olivezos? Was that via smoke signals? A message in a bottle, perhaps? Did you wish upon a star or send thoughts via telepathy? Did you bury the request in a time capsule to be opened in another 40 years? Apparently, the Tulare County DA's office does not have phones, email, or access to the U.S. Postal Service, because Elevesos certainly did not use any of those means to try to contact us and ask for the transcripts he knew for certain that we had. If he was afraid of us, he could have asked the AG's office to get them for him. To be fair, Elevesos does like to talk about semantics a lot, so perhaps he'd like to have an intellectual debate about the meaning of the word tried. So what we are able to do is piece together, you know, what we know now, uh, based off of transcripts at the various appeals hearings. And uh, I don't know, Dave, what do you think? There was several thousands, uh, about a thousand pages or so at least, don't you think? There was about five bankers boxes, a little bit more than that uh, material that uh, we had for review. So they skipped the grand jury and trial where the actual evidence and witness testimony was presented and just reread the appeals documents. They seem to think that's totally fine and normal when they were talking to the Exeter Sun, so why did they go to the trouble of lying about it in their report to the Attorney General? Number two, forensic laboratory reports. That sounds impressive, but those are brief summaries of the actual forensic evidence and testing. Part of a conviction integrity review must be a review of the actual forensic science using current 2019 knowledge. 
Many old convictions were based on junk science or faulty assumptions that have turned out to be wrong. Just because a report made a statement or drew a conclusion does not mean that it was correct. It could have been based on an improper testing method, failure to run control samples, or it could simply overstate the scientific certainty of the evidence. Did they just look at the four-page 2012 DOJ report, or did they properly review the additional 227 pages of casework? Did they read Blake's 1976 report, or did they also review the 128 pages of IFS evidence examination and testing? Did they look at the nine-page summary report from Blake's 2002 testing or also the additional 17 pages of bench notes provided per court order in 2003? Did they review the 2003 correspondence from Morton's lab that clearly states that slide VPH was not an item of evidence and did not contain semen? Spoiler alert here, the actual testing contradicts or fails to support many of the statements contained in those summary reports. Number three, presumably the, quote, supporters of Clifton are us. It's true that our September 4th, 2018 letter to the AG and DA Ward contained the offer to provide, quote, all of the original documents, including police reports, autopsy, labs and forensics, trial and grand jury transcripts, defense private investigator reports, and handwritten defense notes and case correspondence. However, we have never been contacted at any time through any means by any entity representing Tulare County since D'Angelo's arrest. The first we knew of the Conviction Integrity Review or the report was a press inquiry in January 2019, after Ward's PR blast. This points out another particularly ridiculous lie told by Ward in the paper trail interview. It would be fair to say that we, uh, members of our office, reviewed every single uh, item related to this that we could possibly get our hands on. No, that's not at all fair to say. Not even close. Warden Alavezos had actual written notice that the transcripts and other documents existed and that we were willing to provide them for their review. They did not see, quote, every single item. From the 15 boxes of defense files. They saw none. Zero. Nothing. So we're back to semantics and debating the meaning of the word possibly. DA Ward further confirmed in the paper trail that he had received our letter containing the list of documents and the offer. The uh, In the fall, I want to say probably around September of 18, if my memory is correct, the, uh, the supporters of uh, Mr. Clifton did, in fact, send a, uh, a lengthy document in to us, uh, ultimately requesting uh, that we, uh, I guess for lack of a better term, investigate D'Angelo for uh, the, the murder of Donna Joe Richmond. Um, they, and a little bit of it, a majority of it was really based upon D'Angelo. It was a little bit of some of the other issues that have lingered for years and years and years. D.A. Ward intentionally misled the public and the attorney general in an official report and by making false extrajudicial statements about material facts. This reaches far beyond the Clifton conviction and raises serious questions about his honesty in other cases and his fitness as an attorney and prosecutor. We are not overstating this. We're talking about unbelievable professional misconduct, and it's just being shrugged off as if it happens every day. It should never happen. 
ever. This paragraph of Ward's report, also published in the Vassilia Times Delta on January 10th, 2019, repeats the lie about the transcripts and adds an additional lie that they, quote, evaluated the evidence. Upon completion of this latest review, I am again confident, just as this office was the previous times we reviewed the case, that the countless hours of report analysis, evidence evaluation, court transcripts, and DNA evaluation solidifies that Oscar Clifton tragically and violently ended the life of Donna Jo Richmond in an orange grove the day after Christmas in 1975. Ward specifically ordered that no evaluation of the evidence was to be done during the Conviction Integrity Review, and Alavesos confirmed that Ward's direction was followed. Paper Trail, Episode 117. We, the purpose of the review and my instructions to uh, Dave and the other members of our staff is we're not going to go back and redo the trial, retest everything. Uh, we're going to look at, is there any new information that's presented that, that calls into question and makes us do it? And obviously that was the arrest um, and inserting, for lack of a better term, the D'Angelo factor into, into the case. So we were not going to go back and, and reweigh or retest uh, all the evidence. Um, that's not the purpose of our, of our review and, and other offices around. We are not going to initiate a process to go back and reweigh uh, the evidence that was presented. We're not going to um, uh, get into a factual basis of who we believe, who we don't believe. We're going to give great deference to the prior courts, the trial court, the appellate courts, and all those court decisions. Right there, both Ward and Alavesos clearly state that they did not even try to meet their minimal duty as prosecutors under RPC 3.8. Literally, the one thing the prosecutor is not supposed to do in a conviction integrity review is to give any deference to the prior courts. In fact, that is the polar opposite of their duty. The integrity review process only applies to cases where there has been a conviction, the appeals have all been denied, and actual innocence is claimed. Legal and procedural issues are irrelevant. The only question is, did the person actually commit the crime for which he was convicted? The starting presumption is that both the trial court and appeals courts got it wrong. We would say that Ward and Alavesos don't understand their duties or the conviction integrity review process. But if that's the case, why did they lie about it in their report? This paragraph of Ward's report repeats several lies and adds a new twist. Quote, the unit reviewed thousands of pages of evidence, which included police reports, photographic evidence, forensic laboratory reports, available trial transcripts, numerous writs and appeals in conjunction with the associated habeas transcripts of witness testimony, post-conviction DNA evidence reports, as well as a complete review of information provided to us by Clifton supporters related to Oscar Clifton's conviction for the 1975 murder of Donna Jo Richmond. Number one, quote, available trial transcripts. That seems to be two lies. All of the transcripts were available to them, offered in writing, and they didn't review the trial or grand jury transcripts because they didn't have them. Number two, they clearly admit here that they were relying on random quotes from the prior DA's briefs and a few transcript pages attached to those briefs, including many that were statements made by Powell at trial 
that contained lies about the facts, testimony, and evidence. It would be impossible to even begin an actual conviction integrity review without reading all 13 volumes of the transcript. 3. They also admit that they did not review the actual witness statements, but rather bits and excerpts from old appeals briefs that were cherry-picked to support the conviction. How can you judge the reliability of each witness when you haven't read their original sworn statements or their grand jury and trial testimony? You can't. It's impossible. 4. Again, this contains the grossly misleading statement that they reviewed the, quote, information provided by us. That is clearly meant to mislead the AG's office and the press into believing that they had all of the documents we offered in our original letter. They have nothing from our files. As far as we're aware, they didn't even bother to pull any copies of documents from our website or Facebook page, let alone ask to see the originals. Our last communication with Tulare County Sheriff's Office was an email we sent to Investigator Dempsey on the day that D'Angelo's arrest was announced, April 25, 2018, at 5.23 p.m. In that email, we said, Good evening, Chris. What amazing news from Sacramento. As you can imagine, we are relieved that a suspect has finally been apprehended in the GSK series. We've been able to establish that Joe D'Angelo was an Exeter PD officer from May of 1973 and was promoted to sergeant by the time he left in May of 1976. Is there any chance we can work now with you to examine the possibility that D'Angelo was involved in the armor homicide? The time frames line up, and we're continuing our work to obtain answers. As you might imagine, we have a ton of interest from the media and investigators about our podcast and info. We would still welcome that opportunity to find an answer for Jennifer and Donna. Thank you. So, DA Ward's team of DA and TCSO investigators knew full well that we had thousands of pages of critical original case documents, including trial and grand jury transcripts, witness statements, private investigator interviews, and forensic bench notes. Ward's five banker boxes of document matches exactly what he admits he has, some of the old appeals briefs and opinions. In addition to those five boxes, we have ten more, filled with the actual evidence in the case. It's one thing for Ward to ignore his legal duty to review the evidence, but it's something else altogether to include false statements of fact in his official report and submit it to the Attorney General. Just like the duty to review the evidence in a claim of actual innocence, D.A. Ward and A.D.A. Alavezos also have a duty to tell the truth. California Rules of Professional Conduct 4.1 Truthfulness in Statements to Others In the course of representing a client, a lawyer shall not knowingly a. Make a false statement of material fact or law to a third person. A misrepresentation can occur if the lawyer incorporates or affirms the truth of a statement of another person that the lawyer knows is false. A non-disclosure can be the equivalent of a false statement of material fact or law under paragraph A, where a lawyer makes a partially true but misleading material statement or material omission. In addition to this rule, lawyers remain bound by Business and Professions Code section 6106-6068 and Rule 8.4. 
California Business and Professions Code 6106. The commission of any act involving moral turpitude, dishonesty, or corruption, whether the act is committed in the course of his relations as an attorney or otherwise, and whether the act is a felony or misdemeanor or not, constitutes a cause for disbarment or suspension. If the act constitutes a felony or misdemeanor, conviction thereof in a criminal proceeding is not a condition precedent to disbarment or suspension from practice therefore. California Business and Professions Code 6068 It is the duty of an attorney to do all of the following. To counsel or maintain those actions, proceedings, or defenses only as appear to him or her legal or just. To employ, for the purposes of maintaining the causes confided to him, those means only as are consistent with truth, and never to seek to mislead the judge or any judicial officer by an artifice or false statement of fact or law. To advance no fact prejudicial to the honor or reputation of a party or witness unless required by the justice of the cause with which he or she is charged not to encourage either the commencement or the continuance of an action or proceeding from any corrupt motive of passion or interest, never to reject for any consideration personal to himself or herself the cause of the defenseless or the oppressed. California Rules of Professional Conduct 8.4 Misconduct It is professional misconduct for a lawyer to violate these rules or the State Bar Act knowingly assist, solicit, or induce another to do so, or do so through the acts of another. Engage in conduct involving dishonesty, fraud, deceit, or reckless or intentional misrepresentation, or engage in conduct that is prejudicial to the administration of justice. A lawyer may be disciplined under Business and Professions Code Section 6106 for acts involving moral turpitude, dishonesty, or corruption, whether intentional reckless, or grossly negligent. These codes contain additional duties to be truthful and also prohibit the consideration of personal feelings and corrupt motives of interest. This raises the question of embarrassment to TCSO and the DA's office for the wrongful conviction, being blamed for allowing D'Angelo to go free, and possible financial liability to the Cliftons and later D'Angelo victims as motives for lying in the report covering up a wrongful conviction, and then falsely exonerating and refusing to investigate D'Angelo as a suspect. In addition to the lies in the report about the documents and evidence reviewed and procedure followed, there are numerous false statements of material facts and statements so grossly misleading as to be considered false under the law. We've covered these in-depth in past episodes. Remember, there should be no spin on the facts during a conviction integrity review. It is supposed to be a completely objective, fresh look at all of the evidence, statements, and testimony with the starting assumption of actual innocence. It must use the current legal standards for admission of evidence at trial, modern scientific knowledge, and all new facts and evidence that have come to light since the original investigation and trial, including alternate suspects. If D.A. Ward had done an actual conviction integrity review, could he have found that the remaining evidence was sufficient to support the conviction, or was there clear and convincing evidence of actual innocence? 
That means, is innocence substantially more likely than guilt? Is it highly probable? This standard is lower than beyond a reasonable doubt and higher than a 50-50 chance. Part 2 of this episode examines the answers to these questions.